All right, so today we'll be looking at chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. That is our text before us, and I've titled this message, Get Busy Waiting. So as is typical with most of uh, Paul's books, if not all of his letters, is there will be a lot of theology in the beginning, much about who God is and what God has done, what God is going to do, and then that leads right into a lot of application. And that makes sense to me, right thinking leads to right living. And so that, that's very consistent. And here, what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks is the Lord's return, the, the second coming of Christ. And last week we talked specifically about living on the lookout. Living on the lookout. Living in such a way that we're mindful of the fact that the Lord is coming and that has a very real effect on the way that we live. And that there are many people who they don't believe it, they don't know anything about it. There are people who do believe it, but they give no thought to it whatsoever. We're absolutely earthly-minded. We're very concerned about the things going on here all around us, uh, giving very little thought to, to something that's so much more important than all of this, and that is the Lord is coming back. And if you look at Matthew chapters uh, 24 and 25, Jesus gives a number of parables that illustrate for us how we are to live until the Lord returns. And it's really fascinating, and I won't really get into it except to say that there's really two takeaways from these various parables. And one of them is we are to live as though the Master's return could be at any moment. Any moment. And so if we really believed that, that would affect the way that we live, and we know this. And so it would cause us to live with a sense of urgency, it would cause us to be very careful about how we are living personally in a, in a godly way because we want to be ready when the, Lord's return, when the Lord returns. We don't want to be caught and be ashamed of whatever we may be doing or not doing when the Lord comes back. And so we want to live like that with a sense of urgency. But then there is also parables that say we should live as though the Lord's return could be long delayed. Long delayed. And so in that sense... We are investing. We are, we are serving. We are taking what the Lord has given us, those resources, those giftings, and we are putting them to work for the kingdom of God so that we have something to show for our time here and what the Lord has entrusted to our care. So we don't just sell everything and kick back and say, well, Jesus is coming back tomorrow, and so I don't have to do anything. So it's this interesting balance between living as though the Lord is coming back today and living a godly life with that sense of urgency, but then also living as though the Lord's return could be long delayed. And so we are investing, we are serving, we are putting to use what God has given us until He returns so that we have something to show for His glory when He does come back. And so it's a, an interesting balance there between the two, and that is the reality that should describe what Christians live like while the Master is away. One very helpful analogy that I have heard is that of a, a waiter, a waiter. And I've never been a waiter, and so I don't want to act like I know all about this, but just from what I have seen, and it's easy to see, uh, waiters in hospitality, they are on the move. They are not literally just waiting, standing over against the wall. They are serving, and they are multitasking, but they are also very, paying very close attention to your needs. And so they're attentive, and they are ready in a moment to come over and to serve you, but they're also serving at other tables, and they're very busy in the process. And so that's kind of the idea. We are waiting, but we're not just kicked back doing nothing. We are busy. We are multitasking. We are serving, but we are being mindful. And so I've always appreciated that analogy of a waiter and, and waiting and so on and so forth. That's very helpful in my mind. And so... It makes sense then that right after Paul gives this lengthy uh, talk on the Lord's return, he goes right into all of these practical applications. And so that's, that's how I would interpret the context here. Paul goes right from, the Lord is coming back, and we need to be ready. Therefore, here's a list of practical ways in which we can do that. And so this is what waiting looks like. Okay? Follow? So we got to get busy waiting. 
get busy waiting. And so I have six things here that I would say describe for us what that looks like. And so what's kind of cool about this is that, well, it's really just a, a barrage of imperatives, things that we must do. It's like a, a, just a buckshot. And I've always approached this text or text like this in that way as though every single little verse uh, stood alone and they really weren't interconnected. But that's really not the case. All of these verses connect quite nicely and you can group these verses and there's a handful of things here that Paul is is pointing to that are important that we should be concerned with, that we should be seeking to do. And so that's what we have in front of us today in verses 12 through 28. And so the first thing that Paul tells the believers there in Thessalonica that they ought to do, that they ought to be mindful of, that they ought to seek, that is to benefit from their spiritual leaders. That's the first thing that he says. You ought to benefit from your spiritual leaders. They are here for you. God has made it that way. That is by God's design. And so we want to be mindful of that, recognize that, and make use of that. And so he says in verse 12, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them highly, very highly, in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. So he says here, we urge you. We urge you to recognize. Paul says, I urge you to recognize the spiritual leaders that God has placed in your lives. And this is talking about the pastors, the elders, in the local church. God has given pastors, elders, for the benefit of the body of Christ for the benefit of the saints. And that could not be more clear in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And speaking of Jesus, it says that He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So there it is. He has given some to be pastors and teachers. For what reason? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so... That is the role of the pastor in the body of Christ. Jesus has given pastors to the body so that they can equip the saints for the work of the ministry and for the strengthening and the building up of the body of Christ. So we all have a part to play okay, in the body of Christ. It's not that I'm the professional minister and that you guys show up and hear the word and then go home. My job is to equip you so that you can be useful in the kingdom of God. And it's interesting, if I'm not mistaken here, this word equip, it's the same word that is used when Jesus came to, um, to John and James and called them. It says they were mending the nets. And so as those fishermen would use the nets, the nets would get worn out. And so part of the job would be to restore and to mend those nets so that they were adequate for the job of catching fish. And so same word here. It's the job of the pastor to equip the believers, to equip you so that you have all that you need for the work of ministry and for the strengthening of the body of Christ. And that's all of us collectively working together to encourage and strengthen one another. And so that's the job of the pastor. And so you would do well to, to receive care from the pastor to that end. And so Paul says to recognize those who labor among you. That is, don't disregard, don't discount. Instead, acknowledge and make use of, benefit from the labor of the pastors in the church. And we have several pastors here. We have seven, in fact, elders that God has raised up here to serve the body of Christ and to equip the body of Christ. And so you may ask, how do I go about doing that? How, how do we go about benefiting from the pastors in the church? And so I think the way that Paul describes them, there are three things here, will be very helpful for us as we consider these things. And so he says, note with me there that they are those who are over you in the Lord. That's one description that Paul gives of the, the pastor in the church. And so that is delegated authority that we have received from Jesus that comes with the position to lead, to lead in the church. And so God raises up leaders, but 
we are serving on behalf of Jesus. You guys don't belong to me. I didn't die for you. It wasn't my blood that was shed. It was Jesus who died for you, and you were purchased by his blood. But I have been entrusted with the awesome responsibility of leading you guys in Christ and shepherding you. And so this is servant leadership. That's really what it's getting at here. We are servant leaders. I don't get behind you guys and push you. I'm not trying to prod you along with a cattle prod. We lead from the front. We lead by example. And we seek to lead with influence. And so that's the idea. You know, pastors are supposed to be examples to the flock who love the body of Christ and who lead with influence. Not with force. Not with power. Not domineering. And there are plenty of pastors out there, unfortunately, who do do that. But that's that is not the greatest way to lead. It's always influence. And I've seen people, I've seen this personally, who they don't have a title, but man, they have such influence that just being around other people, you see people are drawn to them, and people follow their lead, and people uh, ask them questions, and you just see how they raise the godliness in a given place because they they are influential. They are leading by example. They're humble, but they're genuine, and they're the real thing, and people are drawn to that. And so that's what we seek to be. We are servant leaders who want to lead by example and want to lead by influence so that you have a pattern to follow. That's a humbling thing. That's a frightening thing, quite honestly, if we're going to you know, think about that, that God has called us into that but it is it's the case nonetheless. And so that's one thing that Paul says that you are to, to recognize. Paul also describes the pastors as those who admonish you. And so this is an interesting word. It's nuthateo. And there's actually a, a particular type of biblical counseling out there called nuthetic counseling. And that's the kind of counseling uh, that we would endorse, that we would use and it's, it's biblical counseling, biblical confrontation. And, and literally what this word means when Paul says those who admonish you, it means to place in the mind. That's what the word nuthateo means. And so it's reasoning with someone by warning them. It's admonishment through instruction. It's supplying doctrinal and spiritual content, urging people to choose God's best. And so it's dealing with issues with the Word of God. What does the Word of God say about this issue? Helping people to understand it clearly and to understand how that applies to their lives so that they can deal with any given issue or struggle that they are dealing with. That's the job of the pastor, but not the pastor alone. Because the same word in Romans, Paul says, I am convinced that you are all competent to admonish one another. Same thing. So as I am seeking to be an example in how I, how I go to the Word of God and how I use the Word of God in teaching and counseling, you guys are to learn from that and do the same thing. Paul says that we're all capable of doing this, to admonish one another with the Word of God, to put the truth into the person's mind from the Bible. Amen? And so that's how that works. And so looking to the example... Um, benefiting, receiving admonishment from the Word of God to the end that you are then equipped to do the same for others. And then Paul says that they are those who labor among you. That's another description of the pastor. Those who work hard in your midst. And so this is significant. The pastor is to be a hard worker. Timothy talks about that. Um, Paul, writing to Timothy, he describes the pastor as an athlete, as a soldier, as a farmer, and as a, a worker, as a, a construction guy, if you will. Those are all descriptions of a pastor, and they all speak of rigorous, hard work. And so the work of a pastor is supposed to be that. We are supposed to toil and sweat and labor. But he also says, amongst you. Now that's significant. A pastor is to be in the midst of his people. The pastor is supposed to be working hard amongst his people. You have pastors who are pulpit pastors and nothing else. And they come out onto the stage, they teach and preach, they go back out the door, and you won't see them or hear from them again until the next Sunday. And so I'm, I'm sure the bigger that a church gets, um, the harder it is for it not to be that way. But 
Paul said that the, the elders are to be those who are working hard in your midst. They are amongst you, amongst the sheep, amongst the people. That's the way uh, our King Jesus is. He's described in Revelation as the one who walks in the midst of the lampstands. That is, he is in the midst of his church. And so the shepherd, the under-shepherd of Christ, should do no other. And so we are those who lead by example and influence, those who admonish you with the Word of God to try to put the truth of God's Word in your mind, and those who labor, uh, labor in your midst, who toil. And so these are things that you guys should be benefiting from. These are things that you have to work towards benefiting from. And so how are, in what ways does the pastor labor in the midst of his people? Well, first off, we labor in the Word of God. We labor in the Word of God. We spent countless hours, week in, week out, laboring in the Word of God so that we can feed, feed the flock. And that's what Jesus told Peter to do, to feed his sheep. And so that's what pastors do, and they take it very seriously. And you're to benefit from that. We work hard to that end. And so if in your mind you're thinking, maybe I'll come to church today, maybe I won't. I'd like to sleep in or I'd like to go do this thing over here, whatever that might be. And I'm not saying there's not a time and a place, but that's not benefiting from the pastor in the church when he has worked hard to provide some type of nourishment for you. Does that make sense? And so we want to be mindful of that. God has put pastors in the church to serve and bless and strengthen the church, and we want to, we want to take full advantage of that. Pastors labor hard at getting to know the flock. I want to know the people that are here something that has been more and more on my heart, and I've been working more towards getting to know everybody individually. It's not something that happens quickly, but little by little, steady and sure, I want to get to know everybody as best as I can, but you have to let me do that. So you can't be incognito. If you want your pastor to, to be able to serve you fully, to know you well, and to be able to administer to you as effectively as possible, i got to know who you are. And so that's really my desire and that's something that we're working towards doing. Pastors labor in exercising oversight, leadership in the body of Christ. Always considering, praying, thinking towards what can we do, what can we add to the end that it will strengthen and encourage the flock, like the life groups. That's something that the pastors are laboring diligently in right now to, to put together for your benefit, for all of our benefit. And so that, that would be another way in which the pastors labor. Praying, strategizing, trying to understand what can we do here in the body of Christ to add health and strength to the believers. Pastors labor in prayer and counseling. We labor, we pray for you. We want to be available to counsel you. And again, these are things that you have to allow us to do. And so you have to be present. We need to know how we can be praying for you. Uh, if there are needs, you have to come to us so that we can counsel you, so that we can admonish you. And so, again, um, we're not psychics. You know, we can't just know all these things. And so you have to uh, let us know how we can best serve you because we want to labor in your midst. And pastors labor at being better pastors. I can't speak for all pastors, but for the elders here, that's a big deal. It's something that we always are working to do. We want to be better because we want to be able to serve you better. And so Paul tells Timothy to immerse himself in the duties of the pastor to the end that his progress will be evident to all. Everybody is going to see that the pastor is improving. And so that's something that we take seriously here, and that's something that I take very seriously, going to school, surrounding myself with other experienced pastors, being coached and leadership by other pastors, just anything and everything I can do to improve myself to the end that I can serve you better. Continual improvement. And you know it just takes time. I had a pastor tell me the other day, it takes 10 years to have 10 years experience. <laughs> Isn't that something? But that, that's just the truth. You can't fast track it. Now there are things that we can do, obviously, to grow faster uh, and, and to become better, but at the end of the day, it just takes time. So, I, you know, just personally, I want to say thank you guys. Um, I'm three years in as the senior pastor now, and you guys have been patient with me. And I love you all very much, and I thank you for your patience. 
And, uh, you know, it's my heart's desire to immerse myself into these things and to be better all the time so that I can love and serve you better. And I know that's the heart of all the elders, pastors here in this church. So we want you guys to benefit from the leaders that God has placed in your midst. Paul says that you're to esteem them very highly in love. Show regard, to show regard the, the pastors that are in your midst and to do it with love. And so... It's not in fear, you know, we don't shepherd with a heavy hand, you don't show regard or esteem the pastors highly out of fear, right? That's not good, but in love, it's, it's relational. We want to lead relationally here. We want to lead relationally. And then he says to do this for their work's sake, for the sake of the duty that is before the pastors in the church. We are those who care for your souls, and we have to answer to the Lord for it. That's heavy. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And so we have an obligation to serve you and to watch out for your souls, and we have to answer to God in our service for you. That's heavy, isn't it? And so the writer of Hebrews says to let the pastor do that with joy and not with grief because that's not helpful for you. And so recognizing that it's an awesome responsibility to be a pastor in a church. We have to answer to the Lord one day for how we served His people with the giftings that He gave us. We're stewards. And so... It's important. So we want to serve you to the best of our ability before Christ, and we want you guys to benefit as much as you can from our leadership here in the church. And I'll just say it's harder to be a pastor now than it has ever been before. Uh, you know, in some ways, I'm, I only know this because I'm being told by older generations, but in a time where YouTube and podcasts and all these things are rampant, you guys probably are being pastored by the best of the best all around the world, and those who have, who have even been from other generations and eras, mighty men of God, and those who are current, right? And uh, then you roll in here, and I get to share with you one hour out of the week. And so there was a time when all of that wasn't there. And so the local pastor, that was that was where you got fed. That was where you learned. He was the resident theologian. You know, he was, he was the go-to guy. He was the Bible answer man. But now, I'm just one voice in an in a ocean of voices. And so, it's challenging. It's challenging. And I've heard pastors say, who are at the end of their ministry, if it were like that when they were coming up, they don't know if they could have or would have uh, stepped into that calling. And so, just recognizing that. And so... Um, it's not easy, but it's what God has called us to do, and it's our desire to serve you to the best of our ability, and we want you guys to benefit from that. And then Paul says, be at peace among yourselves. Just that little attachment there. I think that's a little practical application for uh, how you can help your pastors. Be at peace with one another, and be at peace with your leaders, uh, and encourage them in the Lord. And so... Um, yeah, that's just good wisdom right there. And so that leads us into point number two. What's the next thing that's important uh, for the church while we're waiting on the Lord's return? And that, I would say, is pursue the good of your fellow brothers and sisters. Pursuing the good of your fellow brothers and sisters. Verse 14, it says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, Uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. So there are three groups here that Paul speaks to. The unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And he says that they are, we are to warn those who are unruly. This word unruly, it means out of order or slack in the performance of duty. And Paul says that we are to warn those. And so there is a time and a place for that. There is a time when we have to challenge one another, when we have to call one another to step it up. 
Um, sometimes the most loving thing that we can do is biblically confront sin, to confront people with the truth. Not, not bully people, not attack people, but to love people with the Word of God and to call them to a higher standard. I have been the recipient of that over the years. I have needed that many times over. I praise God for it when people were willing to do the hard thing because most people do not want to confront other people, right? You have the select few who live for that. That's a whole other issue, you know? Uh, they just, yeah, can't wait for another opportunity to do that. But most of us don't. We don't like being confrontational. We do not like being confronted. I mean, honestly, who does, right? But that sometimes is the most loving thing that we can do, is when we see somebody who is in a place they should not be doing things that they should not be doing, and they need to be warned. They need to be admonished. And so that, that word here, warn, to warn the unruly, is that same word. That same word, admonish, to put into the mind biblical truth, uh, to, to call people to step into it and to do what they know they need to do from the Word of God. And so we all have a responsibility to do that one to another. And so recognizing that sometimes there are those who need to be confronted, and sometimes it may be us. You know, like I said, I've been on the receiving end of this. I have seen some of the most amazing things. I have seen people get confronted, called out, and they didn't like it at first, but they, they responded to it, and I have seen their lives totally transformed. I've seen other people take it personally, get offended, say that they were attacked, and then leave, and they go out bitter and, uh, and angry, and that's very unfortunate. Um, but just recognizing there is a time and a place. Sometimes we have to call it what it is, and we have to... Uh, call one another to a higher standard. And so Paul says we need to be ready to do that. He also says that we must comfort the faint-hearted. Comfort the faint-hearted. This word faint-hearted here, it means timid or lacking courage. And to comfort means to come alongside them and to encourage, to put your arm around them, to walk with them, to strengthen them. Sometimes we have to stir one another up to love and good works. Sometimes that's all somebody needs. They just need somebody to speak a word of encouragement into their life and to walk with them and to, to strengthen them and to stir them up and to provoke them on in love. And so recognizing that there is a time and a place for that. I have been in that place. I have needed that kind of care. I've had the privilege to be able to encourage other people to that end, and just recognizing that there's a time and a place for that, and being mindful of that. There are those around us who need that kind of encouragement. And then he says that we are to uphold the weak. This word weak here, it means a lack of vigor, depleted, insufficient resources. Man, has anybody in here ever felt that before? I think we all have. And so to them, Paul says, we are to uphold them. That is, to give as much support as is needed so as not to collapse. That is, to carry. You know, there's, there's a time to come along somebody and to put your arm around them and to encourage them along, and there's a time when you just have to flat out carry somebody. And so uh, that's important to know when we need to devote ourselves sacrificially to the help of others in need. And so you have all of these, warning the unruly, encouraging the faint-hearted, upholding the weak. These are all things that we ought to be minded towards, something that we should be doing intentionally. These are things that are true of us that we have to recognize when we're in this place. And you know what's so cool to me is that Jesus exemplified all of these perfectly. Jesus exemplified all of these actions perfectly. Jesus warned the unruly. Jesus would rebuke people when they needed to be rebuked. And he did it perfectly. He did it with a righteous, with a righteous confrontation. Jesus comforted the faint-hearted. And Jesus upheld the weak. And so we can look, we have no need to look any further than the example of our Savior Himself in the Word of God to see these things in action and to see what that looks like in its proper place. And we know that Jesus 
has carried us. Jesus has done for us what we could not do in our own weakness. And in Romans chapter 5, it says that when we were without strength, when we were without strength at the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. Jesus died for us. When we were not pursuing God, when we weren't looking for God, when we were hopelessly, helplessly, uh, helplessly, desperately lost, unable to save ourselves, Jesus died for us, that we could have life in Him. Jesus truly is the one who carried us in our weakness. You know, that's the good news of the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Nobody in here could keep God's standards. Not one of us. We blew that a long time ago. You know that? We know that, don't we? We blew that a long time ago. But Jesus alone could do for us what we could not do. Jesus kept God's law perfectly. That's what He came to do. He came to live the life that we were called to live in our stead. But then, not only that, Jesus took the penalty for our sin. The penalty that we deserved. The punishment that we deserve for our, for our rebelliousness against a good God. Jesus took that upon Himself on the cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath that was meant for us in our place. And then Jesus rose again from the grave on the third day, alive forevermore, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding, praying on our behalf. And so now we can call upon the name of Jesus and we can be forgiven, be saved, be born again. That's the good news of the gospel. We could not do this for ourselves. Jesus did this for us perfectly. And we know that we need this. Praise God for us who have experienced this new life in Christ. Praise God for those of us who have been carried by Jesus. And Jesus continues to carry us in our weakness. I don't know about you guys, but I still need Jesus more than ever. Every passing day I recognize that I need Jesus more than ever. And Jesus is there to comfort the faint-hearted. Jesus is there to uphold the weak. And Jesus is there to warn us when we get unruly. And we need all of that. And so praise God that He sent His Son to do for us what we could not do. And He's the perfect example of all of these things. So we look to Jesus to be able to do the same. And here's the thing. These things are all good. And we do do these things. But sometimes I think we get it out of order. You know what I mean when I say that? Sometimes I think that we warn the weak and we uphold the unruly. And so, really, I think what Paul's getting at here is recognizing there is a difference. There is a distinction. There are people who do not need to be rebuked. They need to be encouraged. They need to be upheld. There are people that need to be rebuked. They need to be challenged. They don't need to be pampered or, you know, upheld. And so, recognizing there is a distinction between these, and it's not a one-size-fits-all. And so as we are ministering and encouraging one another, being sensitive to and recognizing what the need is and handling it uh, as it ought to be. And so truly looking out for what is best for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he says to be patient with all. And so here's the thing. In all of this, in all of these things, we are to be patient. If we are warning the unruly or comforting the faint-hearted, or carrying the weak, all of these things are to be done with the spirit of patience and gentleness. Okay, so we don't warn the unruly with a harsh spirit. When are you going to get this together? How many times are you going to do No, we don't do that. How long am I going to have to carry you? How many times? No, we don't do that. It's with a spirit of love, a spirit of gentleness, and a spirit of patience. That's what Paul says here. And then he says, see that no one renders evil to evil, uh, for evil to anyone. There's no paybacks in the kingdom of God. And when you are warning the unruly or seeking to come alongside the faint-hearted, if they should snap on you, that does not give you permission to return evil. You see the, the connection here? And so Paul says we're to make the distinction in these areas. We're to serve each person as the need arises. We're to always do it in a spirit of patience, and we are never to snap back on somebody if, in the process, we get bit. Now, you may have heard the saying that sheep 
have teeth and they bite. Um, you know, that's true. Many a pastor have bite marks all over them. And so it's just part of it. And so sometimes we can do that. We can bite and devour one another. And so we're to always try to have a spirit of patience and never, never respond in like manner. And then he says, always pursue what is good for yourselves and for all. You know, what's fascinating to me, you know the, the golden rule that Jesus gave, do uh, unto others as you would have them do unto, unto you, right? We all know that, right? That is, uh, there, there was, I guess you could say, the golden rule uh, before Jesus came along, but it was very different. It was, don't do unto others what you wouldn't want done to you. And so it's almost kind of a passive thing. Just the way you don't want to be treated, just don't do that. But Jesus flipped it around and said, I want you to actually be intentional. I want you to go out of your way to do to other people the way that you would want things to be done to you. And that's always pursuing good for yourselves and for all. So just a little challenge. This is for me and all of us. How often do we go out of our way to do unto others what we would want done for us? How, how often in a given week do we stop and think about that? How can I do good this week to somebody? What is it that you would be so blessed by if somebody did it for you? And that's going to vary from person to person. We have different likes, preferences, but you know, what is, it, what is something that you would be so blessed if somebody did it for you? And then you turn around and you go do that for somebody else. He says that we are to always be pursuing what is good for yourselves and for all. So truly, seeking the good of our brothers and sisters, that's point two. I'm going to have to move a little more quickly now, all right? So point number three, he says to cultivate a spiritual mindset. That's how I would kind of uh, describe this. Cultivating a spiritual mindset, verses 16 uh, through 18. 17, 16 through 18. He says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So when it says this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, pay close attention to that. Right? You want to know what God's will is? We all want to know what God's will is. I think we spend a lot of time agonizing over what God's will is. Well, here is a very crystal clear description of God's will for us. And the first thing I want to point your attention to is rejoicing always. That is choosing to walk in joy in all circumstances. This is not an easy thing to do, is it? Now, this doesn't mean, like, my dog just died. Praise the Lord. You know, and I know people like that. And, you know, God bless them. Bless their hearts. And uh, if you're from the South, you know what I mean. But... um, you know, we are on some level to rejoice in the good and the bad. And we know this. James chapter 1, we know this verse. Verses 1 through 3, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you might be complete, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So when we have trials in our lives... On some level, we're supposed to be able to rejoice in this, count it all joy, because we know it is for good, that God is using it. But here's the thing, we know this, but do we do it? I would venture to say we very rarely do this. When difficulties come into our lives, we do not take a step back and think, I'm supposed to count this with joy, and that I'm supposed to rejoice always in God no matter what. We flip out, we flesh out, we complain, we get mad. Uh, That's what we do. And so we know to do this, but are we doing it? And so this is the will of God in Christ Jesus, that we be those who rejoice always. In the good or the bad, we can still rejoice in the goodness and the faithfulness of God, that we belong to Him, and that nothing is wasted with God. Nothing is wasted. God is able to use it all for our good. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And so that gives us the ability to rejoice, even when things are not going the way we want them to. He says to pray without ceasing. I would say this is practicing the presence of God. This is living with, a, with an acknowledgement of God continually. We can get up in the morning, spend time with God in prayer and reading the Word of God, and then go on and forget God for the rest of the day. 
That's a very easy thing to do. If we even spend time with Him in the morning. And so, living with a, a recognition of God. Acknowledging God. Proverbs 3 says that very thing. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. So how often in a given day do we give thought to what is pleasing to God? God's goodness, God's faithfulness. How often do we praise God and thank God in, the, in a given day, even when we're having a hard day, when things aren't going the way we want it to go? Just recognizing that God is with you, that God is for you, that God has paid the highest price for you in Christ Jesus, and that He is good, and that He is loving, and that He is faithful. God, would you have me do this? God, what is your will in this area? God, forgive me for responding the way I did in that situation. God, give me the strength to, see, you know, to do this. Give me love for that person. Just walking with God, having that mindset, praying without ceasing. That's kind of the idea there. And then he says, in everything, give thanks. Do we thank God at all? Do we thank God at all? Can we thank God even in difficult situations? knowing that it was God's will, that God was in this, that God deemed, for whatever reason, that it was best for you to have to walk through this difficulty, thanking God that He's with you in the midst of the difficulty, but having a heart of gratitude towards God. And we are a people who have so much to thank God for. And so Paul says we ought to be those who rejoice always, who pray unceasingly, and who in all things give thanks to God. That's, that's God's will for us in Christ Jesus. So having that, that kind of a mindset. Number four, this is I would consider to be the most the stickiest one here. And so I'm going to dive right in. I'm just going to call this maintaining a spirit-filled and spirit-led walk. Maintaining a spirit-filled and spirit-led walk. Verse 19, it says, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So for years when I would read this, I would think that these verses were, had nothing to do with each other. But I've come to realize that this is all very, very much uh, interrelated. And so the do not quench the Spirit, we understand the language here. It says don't put water on the fire. That's the idea of to quench to put the flame out. And Paul uses this language in regard to the Holy Spirit. So I would have always just interpreted or applied this as don't sin. Don't do things that grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't do things that are going to cause the, the vibrancy of the Spirit in your life to die down. You know, when we choose to sin over and over and over, it seems like those convictions are less and less. We become more hardened, more callous, more closed off to the Holy Spirit, not quite able to hear that whisper like we once did. The whisper used to be like a scream, and now it's not. You understand? I think we can all relate with that. But he's actually talking about this in the context of prophecy. In the context of prophecy, he says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. And so he, Paul is saying, Don't disregard don't discount, don't shrug off or think little of prophecies. And so Colin Nichol, he's a, a research professor in Cambridge, uh, he wrote some commentary on this. He said, believers are to be open to the disclosure of God's will through fellow Christians exercising the gift of prophecy. The Thessalonians apparently despised manifestations of prophecy and hence we're cutting off a valuable source of encouragement and extinguishing the Spirit's fire. And so that was quenching the, the Spirit of God by refusing to hear a word from the Spirit through fellow brothers and sisters. Because this is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and the purpose of the gift is for the strengthening and the building up of the body of Christ. That's what the gifts were for. And so by rejecting the operation of that gift... It was actually quenching the Spirit. Does that make sense? And so Paul says, do not despise prophecies, but test all things and hold fast what is good. So don't just reject it, and I would say don't just automatically believe it either. There has to be a balance here, and we are to test it. So again, Colin Nichol, 
He says, rather than rejecting prophecies outright on the basis of inferior prophetic words, and I don't know what he means by that exactly, he says the Thessalonians needed to weigh prophecies to distinguish the true from the false. Tests presumably include the prophecy's conformity with authoritative revelation. This is important. Its value for edification and its evaluation by those with spiritual discernment. So this commentator here suggests that there's a threefold test here when it comes to prophecy. And so I would say, how does it conform to the Word of God? The Bible is the, is the anchor, the revealed Word of God that we have. So if somebody has a word that they're saying is from God, if it contradicts the written revelation of God, then you know it's not from God. Because we know that the Word of God is delivered to us by the Spirit of God. And so the Spirit of God is not going to give somebody else a message that contradicts the Word of God. And then he goes on to say, what is its value for edification? Because that's the purpose of the gifts. This is important, guys. Remember this always. The gifts of the Spirit or the gifts in general that God gives the church are to the end that we encourage and strengthen one another. Sometimes people have prophecies that tear people down, that freak people out, that distress and discourage. And so we need to pay close attention to that. And then the evaluation by those with spiritual discernment. There were people in the early church, I think especially that had a gift, prophets there in the churches, before we had the New Testament writings, that were to evaluate the validity of a prophecy or a word that was given. And so... Um, I think it's good if someone has a prophetic word for there to be people who are able to evaluate the word against the word of God and its, uh, its use for edification, its value for edification. And so we want to test those things. And so Paul says, don't quench the spirit, don't despise or disregard prophecies, instead test them. And then he says, hold fast what is good. If it's tested and proven, hold on to that word. Cling to it. See how all these are connected here? That really kind of surprised me. I never really made that connection before. Hold fast to that word if it's a good word. And then he says, abstain from every form of evil. Now, this could, this little statement here, could just be a general closing statement that's basically saying, Anything else that I forgot, just guard against all of it. Guard against evil. Don't sin. Don't sin. Um, but that's, according to certain commentaries, they, they don't think that's what's happening here. It's basically saying, again, this is regarding prophecy. If it's tested and found to be false, reject it. So if there's a prophecy that is tested and proven, cling to it. If it's found to be false, reject it. And that makes sense to me. And so, having said all of that, that seems to be, I think, a very clear uh, understanding of these, these verses. Um, there's much debate today in the church about prophecy. You probably know this. And there are people that stand on very different sides of the spectrum and, and every degree in between. There's much debate about the presence of prophecy. Does it even exist today truly in the church did it cease in the first century when the apostles died? That's usually you have two schools. You have the cessationists who say that those gifts, the sign gifts, the gift of tongues, prophecy, so on, those ceased with the apostles. Then you have continuationists who would say that those gifts continue on into the present. Those would be the, the two like, most definitive stances there. And then you have a mixed mash in between. So there is that. Um, there are people who have very different definitions of what prophecy even is. Some say that it's nothing more than speaking forth the Word of God. So like when I preach, I am in a very real sense saying, thus says the Lord, because so says the Bible. And so I'm prophesying. That's prophecy. That's, that's how some people understand prophecy. Others would say that, no, it's much more than that. It's speaking forth fresh words from God that are, that are directly to a person that will line up with the Word of God, but it's more than just preaching. Does that make sense? And so I've seen countless debates from people that I love and respect, super godly and intelligent on both sides. That's confusing to me. I've seen rampant abuse 
of the gift of prophecy, man, have I ever seen, and I have experienced it. I've had people prophesy doom and gloom over me and my wife. Um, and then in the next breath, I remember I had a guy tell me that Jess, you know, she was pregnant. We were moving out here. God was not going to bless our move out here, and something tragic was going to happen to Jess, right? And so uh, this was when the elections, 2016 elections, were kind of underway. And he had also received a word that Hillary Clinton was going to win and usher in cataclysmic, you know, um, financial doom on a global scale. And he wrote that down in his diary. But then at some point it started to look like Donald Trump was going to win. And I remember him telling me, you know, I got so mad at God for giving me that false prophecy, I threw that diary in the trash. And so you get that kind of stuff, you know. And so you look at that and you're like... You know, that's out there, and you got to watch out for that. Then you got very well-meaning people. Their heart is right, and they are sincere, and they are genuine. John Piper tells a story years ago. His wife was pregnant, and it was uh, in between uh, services on a Sunday morning, and someone, a lady just came up and gave him a piece of paper and then walked off, and he opened it, and it said, your child is going to be a girl, and your wife is going to die in labor. And uh, he said he went to his office and he wept uncontrollably, you know, because he, he believed it. And so he said, but in labor, it was a boy, and he just praised God it was a boy because he knew that it was not true. It was a false prophecy, you know. And so <clears throat> people can really get upset. I, when I told someone about that, that prophecy of impending doom, uh, on me and Jess, <clears throat> a, a very dear brother of mine said, man, I would be so scared if I were you. And I'm like, no way, no way, I am not scared. And I, I reject that. And it was a false, he was a false prophet, you know. And so we just got to recognize there's, there's a balance on all of this. And so does prophecy exist today or not? I think people can make some strong arguments. They can compile some things from the Bible and church history and say, these things have ceased. They make compelling arguments. But you know what the Bible says? What the Bible says explicitly? It says, do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. And reject that which is evil. That's what the Word of God says. And so I can't go beyond what the Word of God says. So there you have it. But I think we have to be guarded. I think we have to be cautious. We have to test things against the Word of God. What does the Bible say? And we have to consider the value of edification in the matter. And so, to me, what it boils down to is I want to be a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led man. I want to be intentional about interacting with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm much more conservative in this, this area. I was just about, I just about signed a card and walked the aisle to be a Baptist and uh, I had a brother come to me. He said, man, I really think you should come to Calvary Chapel. And um, there's a place for you here. And I went there. And, um, you know, it was, the rest was history. But I'm kind of a hybrid. I've really ran in circles that were ultra conservative. And they did not deal with these things. I, you know, and it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. The Holy Spirit ain't anywhere in that mix. You know what I mean? That's the Holy Trinity. And, you know, um, so this has been something I've had to walk through and be aware of the fact that sometimes I, I think I neglect the Holy Spirit altogether. And so I have to be more mindful about this. I want to be led by the Spirit. Amen? I want to be filled by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. He is our leader. He is our comforter. He convicts us. He, he does all of these things. And so I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want to be led by the Spirit. I don't want to quench the Spirit. Amen? And so we just need to be mindful of that and keep it in its proper place. That's what's important. So we have to make an effort to that end. Number five, trust fully in God's faithfulness to make you holy. Verses 23 through 24. May God, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And so he says here, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. We've been talking about what this word sanctify means. And that is to be holy, to be set apart. And he says, may God do so completely. 
God is committed to our entire sanctification. By that, I don't mean sinless perfection. John Wesley actually made that doctrine, sinless perfection, that we can be perfect in this life. False. There is no way. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we know this. But the Bible is clear that God is going to get us there. One day we will be completely, entirely sanctified, wholly perfected in His sight. In fact, Philippians 1.6 says that. He says that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. Now, people like to get into this, and I've been asked, what do you make of this spirit, soul, body, the trichotomy, all of that kind of stuff? Maybe you know what, what that means or it doesn't. And, you know, I just honestly, I didn't even get into that. Uh, here's what I think it means. It means holiness from head to toe, baby. Plain and simple. Every part of us, God is committed to it. All right? There is nothing in us or about us that is not going to be completely sanctified when God has his way with us. And so we know that this work will be complete at the coming of our Lord. And uh, we know that in the meantime, it's a journey. And so it's something that we are working towards with God in the journey of holiness in this life. But we can rest in the fact that God in his faithfulness will have it be completely so. God wills it, God commands it, God will fulfill it in us. It is a testimony to God's faithfulness. Just as surely as God is faithful, He will sanctify us completely. So don't be discouraged or disillusioned. Trust the process and persevere. Amen? God is with you. God is with us. God is for us. God is far more committed to us than we will ever be to Him. And God is going to sanctify us completely, so He has us. He is carrying us, and He will get us there one day. And so we have to have our minds set on that. That is our hope. And then lastly, number six, take seriously the reading of God's Word. Take seriously the reading of God's Word. Verse 25, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And so I love Paul's humility here. The great Apostle Paul says, Brethren, pray for me. Pray for us. He wasn't ashamed to ask for prayer. He says, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. You know, Paul had great affection for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Within this, he says, I charge you by the Lord Jesus that you read this epistle to all the holy brethren, to the brothers and sisters. And if you'll recall, we did do this. On the, the day that we first got into this book, I read it all the way through. And so, I'm clean. I've been charged by Paul to do it, and I did it. But that just goes to say how important it is to read the Word of God. Paul basically put them under oath. I charge you, this is such strong language, by the Lord that you read this to the holy brethren. And so we got to take seriously the Word of God in our lives. We want to be those who read the Word of God, who are immersed in the Word of God, so that we can grow up thereby and be strengthened and be capable men and women of God and who are in relationship with God through His Word. And then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. We need the grace of Jesus. Amen? And all of these things, until the Lord returns, we need the grace of Jesus to be able to walk in these things well. So just in, in uh, closing here, we want to benefit from our spiritual leaders. We want to pursue the good of our fellow brothers and sisters. We want to cultivate a spiritual mindset. We want to maintain a spirit-filled, spirit-led walk. Trust fully in God's faithfulness to get us across that line to make us holy and to take seriously the reading of God's Word. Amen? That's how we get busy waiting right there. So get busy. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your Word. <clears throat> we thank you that it instructs us in the way of righteousness. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit so that we can live these things out. You didn't just tell us what to do and then say, do it. You gave us the Spirit of God that gives us the ability to walk these things out. So we love you, Lord, and we thank you. And I pray for the body of Christ here that you would fill them with good things by your Spirit, that you would lead them in the good way this week, that you would provide, all, provide for all their needs, God, that you would bring strength to the feeble, God, that you would encourage the faint-hearted and uphold the weak. God, that you would convict and challenge the unruly. 
that you would strengthen and build up the body of Christ for the glory of your name and for the sake of your people and for the sake of the world. And so we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all, and we will see you next week.